Our cell is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and the private sector. Why not register and join us at the Macromedics User Meeting on the 8th of November at the Novotel Hotel in London Paddington? This will be an incredibly insightful day to listen to talks on the Macromedics mobilisation range from our various ranges of thermoplastics all the way to our all-in-one solutions and SBRT products. Please do get in touch for more information. And finally, as always, do not hesitate to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable account specialists as and when required. We are all from a radiotherapy background and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. If you would like to browse our products, please go to our website at www.osl.uk.com or if you would like to speak to us, please call 01743 462 694. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. So welcome to podcast number 61. My name's Jane McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host Naaman Jark Anderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Ross McGee, who talked about his role as the president of the Society College of Radiographers. If you haven't had a chance, do go and take a listen. So we're really pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Stuart O'Callaghan, who will be discussing their experiences of cancer and the charity Live Through This that they founded. So thank you so much, Stuart, for coming and joining us. We're both really giddy to have you on the podcast. What a lovely welcome. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Oh, well, thank you. Um, so could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? And obviously I've said about the charity Live Through This. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So, uh, so my name's Shira Callahan. I use they, them as pronouns. Um, I am a queer person who set this charity up because I went through the system myself. I have uh, chronic myeloid leukemia and I kind of saw firsthand some of the things I was looking for that just weren't there or some of the uh, lack of equitable healthcare and all this sort of stuff. So that's really what pushed me into creating this charity. I, uh, before this was a tattooer, so for those uh, who can't see me, uh, I'm covered in tattoos, so it doesn't really come as much of a surprise, but it, uh, it, it was a job that's quite physically demanding. So when cancer took that from me, I really had a bit of a crisis about what, what do I do? How do I really, I guess, make sense of my experience and what I'm going through? And that's when I decided to get into charity and healthcare, which was entirely new to me. Um, but we sort of hit the ground running and I think the growth of the charity so quickly just shows that people were ready for this to happen and for to have these conversations. So I'm always happy just to have these conversations with anybody who listen. So chronic myeloid leukemia, it's a treatable cancer, obviously. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about what kind of active treatments you're having for it at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. So you're right. It's treatable, but it's considered incurable. So um, it, technically there is a cure in regards to sort of a bone marrow um, procedure, but it's a very risky. Uh, so they tend to sort of avoid that until it's sort of a last case scenario. Um, so what you actually get is a targeted therapy by tyros kinase inhibitors, they're called, TKIs. And mine in particular suppress the myeloid function. So they basically reduce the amount of blood cells my, uh, that I'm creating because if it didn't, 
I would create so many that you know I, I would have white blood cells that didn't really function and cripple my immune system. So I've been on pretty much every TKI under the sun. I'm a really unlucky person. I've gone through all the ones that they said everyone does well with and I've got to the ones that they said you'll never get there. But I'm on the last one now, which is panatinib, and it's somewhat stable. Um, but if, if it, forever, for whatever reason, doesn't become stable, I would have to go on to that rescue procedure. So what was the diagnosis side like for you? So you said you navigated the system at the start. So diagnosis for me was a bit of an odd one in that I wasn't in the UK. So I was in Germany at the time and uh, that meant the process was a little bit different. I mean, not too different, uh, but it was the usual, uh, you know, an odd blood test, go and have lots of consultations, took about a month of a test to get something sorted. But when I really started to notice the difference was when I came back to England. And that's not to say it's different between Germany and England. It's just that's when I really started to engage in services and support. So I came back thinking, oh, let's go back to the place where I'm from. I understand the language better. This is going to be a little bit easier for me to navigate. And also, you know, go back to healthcare systems that I understand, whereas in Germany I was on private healthcare. So there's all that kind of stuff as well. And I got back and didn't really find what I was looking for. I was looking for LGBT inclusive things or groups. I even moved to Brighton thinking I would find something. And then when you go into a really beautiful centre like the Horizon Centre down there, the Macmillan Centre, and seeing nothing still that supports you, it's, it's a bit of a shock at the front. And that's for me, someone who's willing to go up and ask and, and ask if there's anything there. Um, and I also found that support and options were really gendered. Uh, so obviously I was tattooing at the time and I asked to join art support and things that would align with me. And I was told I wasn't allowed to do it because that was for the women and I had to go play sport with the young men. And just things like that where I was like, this is needlessly gendered and, and, and the, the pushback against the kind of support I wanted to access and the lack of information that was directly aimed at me actually made me pull back from support in entirety for about two to three years. And it wasn't until I reached breaking point and had to go into uh, psychological therapy in, in my hospital that I actually finally started to talk about things properly. That's really distressing to hear as a healthcare professional to think that actually, you know, there are support services there, but for you, it wasn't appropriate. What were you looking for? What do we need to change? Um, you know, you mentioned a little bit about being gendered, but what would have made it more accessible for you? So I, I think it's that aspect of healthcare in itself wasn't really built with people like myself and my community in mind. So without even meaning to sometimes, healthcare can be quite exclusive. I, I think a lot about a friend of mine who's not with us anymore. Um, she was an, a much older um, non-binary person who died of cancer. And I remember when she was going through treatment, uh, especially right at the end, she would go to cancer centers and she would say, okay, I'm in these spaces, but I still feel like a lesbian. Uh, and it's that thing of sometimes there is just a sort of uh, intangible difference that you kind of know the spaces aren't meant for you. And the way things pe people can get better with it is obviously having services is one. And if they don't have them, learning how to signpost the things around and getting more involved in the community. Um, but also, you know, going through training, understanding the language, you know, understanding the basics so that when someone comes in and says, hey, you know, I'm going through this cancer and I'm also transitioning, I'm having a really hard time, not being met with more questions, you know, so you're not having to do that labour of educating the person that you've actually gone to for support. It's interesting because lots of people who have a cancer diagnosis, they feel that in every consultation as well. So just as a parallel that you're constantly repeating your story, 
Pharmacy, as you said, it's that one size fits all approach to healthcare in the medical world. Um, so I know we talked briefly before pronouns, something that has come in quite, I'd say, quite recently, has become more visible. It's been there for a long time, but it's obviously more visible. And I think people, well, I say people are more open to it. Some people are more open to it. Why do you use pronouns, and from your personal viewpoint, and how is it more inclusive for other people? So. Yeah, pronouns is such a funny one because I think it's got whipped up in this sort of media hysteria, to be, if I'm being honest, because pronouns are just a feature of English language, you know, and, and we're using them all the time, whether it's he, she, they, you know, even broader. It's, it, basically, a pronoun is just a word we use to replace someone's name or, or an object in a sentence. So this idea of them being new sometimes, I think, is the thing that whips it up and makes people want to push against it. Um, and then people get really stuck on this idea of they as a singular pronoun. Um, except that we use it all the time. So um, you may notice even on your phone, if it, if it gives you an Instagram um, uh, notification, sometimes it will say so-and-so updated their story. Because Instagram doesn't know that person's gender, so it's not making any assumptions. You know? and, and you wouldn't think twice about that notification when you read it. But unfortunately, people have been sort of clued into this idea of like, oh, we must resist this in some way. And people always do this whole, oh, it's not grammatically accurate. Well, it is actually. It is perfectly fine. And also you is also used in singular and plural as well. And we have no issue with that. So, so I think it is, it's part of understanding that it's a normal grammatical feature and it's nothing new. The other part is this idea of some people want to use they instead of others. That's myself included. And it's, it's this idea that it's a pronoun that isn't gendered. So if you do feel non-binary in some way or you feel like it doesn't align with you in some way, then why shouldn't you be able to pick a word that reflects who you are better and so you can be referred to correctly? And uh, when people do struggle to understand how it works as well, especially in email signatures and stuff, I always kind of point to the fact that we're very, very used to seeing Mr., Mrs., Ms., Dr., etc., and, and we see that as quite normal. And we tend to make assumptions from that about people's pronouns. So really, pronouns are just adding a clarity that wasn't there before. And there will be many doctors who are women who will know this firsthand, that when you have doctor, you get misgendered all the time when you get your emails come through. So again, it's that way to add a little bit of clarity. And the additional thing it does is it shows for those who do particularly want to be using, for example, uh, third gender pronouns, it's, it's a way to show that you understand that, you accept that, you make space for that, and that you're aware of the community. And it genuinely as well allows people to feel safe to be themselves and come out. So Stuart, what would you say to someone who says, actually, I don't want to use pronouns, I don't ask people for their pronouns? I think, I mean, the... the, the, the... The, the sort of reactionary part of me will be like, well, if you don't want to use pronouns, then you should be able to use he or she, like you, or just use your name forever. You know, it, it's this kind of thing. But the reality is, is if you don't want to display them, that's your choice. That's absolutely your choice. There's no sort of dogmatic belief that everybody has to do something in some way, right? You know, it, it's really a case of if you want to make the effort to make the people around you aware that you understand these things and you're being inclusive, great. If you feel like that goes above and beyond something you're willing to do, also fine you know it is it, I don't think there's any forced disclosure that, that should be going on it's really just that case of whether you appreciate it and want to be part of a movement that makes more people feel comfortable I know Amanda Boulderston when she came on to talk about querying um, cancer she said that one of the things that she found was specifically when people made the effort to ask about pronouns and engaged in it but then actually lacked any knowledge or depth or then failed to use them you know what can we do that's that 
kind of embraces this culture of change because it, it does frustrate me. And I know Naaman and I have discussed this, that it shouldn't be people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, transitioning, transsexual. Anyone shouldn't have to educate anyone else constantly because that's already why, you know, for you coming on a podcast is amazing. But it's also really frustrating because people should be also embracing the fact that they're the ones that need to do the learning, not you absolutely. teaching people. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and there's an additional layer to this as well because of the context we're talking about, right? Typically, these people are cancer patients and they just want to get on with being a cancer patient. So, so I think that's why there's this extra uh, level of this of educate yourself where possible. So, so that can be going out and finding information online. There's some really wonderful, fantastic videos about pronouns that will talk you through it. I mean, we even created one. You can find it on our YouTube. So, so there's this content that is out there. And, it's, and I think the other thing is just getting accustomed to it. And that can be either in the conversations you're having, the way you're sort of practicing it even with the people around you. It can even be in the content you watch if you decide to watch queer-oriented entertainment and get used to it there and see it used in context so it doesn't feel so awkward. And you soon start to realise that it's all much more achievable than you originally thought. And I think there is definitely a misconception about how pronouns are used in that queer context. So, you know, using they and so on, uh, especially neo pronouns when it's like ZZ and ones that are a little bit more complicated. Um, there, there is a miscommunication. I remember one person being very earnest and really meaning the best, but she was saying, OK, so should I use they to make other people feel more comfortable? It's like, no, no one's telling you to change the pronouns you're using. Like that, That's not what we're trying to say. Um, it's more just a case of this openness to describe who we are and share that with others. Um, but Amanda's right. Like It also does need to be backed up with training overall. And I do feel for people in the healthcare profession because there really isn't any core medical curriculum that supports LGBT people outside of sexual health and context with HIV and things like that. And I think that in itself ends up baking in a bit of an implicit bias because if you go through your whole clinical education and the only time you've had conversations around our community is when it's either elective or sexual health focused you start to encode those things that either these considerations are elective or are only able to do with sexual health so what's that do when you go to treat that patient and i think this is one of the barriers we have even even as a charity we sometimes have to educate people about why we even exist because people have this well, we treat everybody the same and i didn't learn that there were any differences when i was in school and we have to really put the idea out there, actually, if we're moving towards this idea of personalised care, who you are and your identity with sexual orientation, gender identity is a really big part of that. And it really can have some material impact on your cancer treatments and your outcome and experience. It's funny you make that parallel about personalised care. It's, but when people say, so for me, from a, a racial skin tone perspective is oh, I don't see colour, or well, you should see colour, mm-hmm. or oh, I don't see the person there, I don't see their sexuality, well, you should do, because that's just ignoring it. That's I think it. it's that naivety when, uh, this might be controversial to people listening, but I don't think there's such thing as unconscionable bias, sorry, unconscionable bias. I just think you're just biased. It doesn't matter if you don't see it or not. If you've made a conscious decision not to accept pronouns or not to see that I'm brown, it's bias. It doesn't really matter, does it? Oh, oh I agree with you, and especially when it's right in front of you. And especially when that, especially if it's been around an element of disclosure and that person has disclosed something to you and you're still saying that you're not going to see them, like that's that's really quite offensive. So, so and, and I agree with you, this idea of, I don't see color in these kind of things. It's, it's just so avoidant of the issue. 
you know, because whether you think you see it or not, you obviously do. And, and it's also ignoring the larger systems and the barriers and the data we have about the difference in opinion. And this leads quite a lot into the idea of data as well. So we know in healthcare that we are awful at registering people's ethnicity. We are awful at registering their sexual orientation and gender identity. And then what that means is there's this real paucity of data around incidence rates, outcomes, etc. And, and we've kind of caught in a really negative catch-22 where as people driven by the community or third sector say, hey, we really want to do a piece of work to improve what we are seeing on the ground in our community, when you go to commissioners, they say, well, where's the data? But they're not collecting the data, so what are you supposed to do? So it, it's really hard sometimes to get this positive movement forwards. And I've even questioned Amanda about this, NHS chief exec, and said, you know, it, it's not good enough, really, uh, especially when sexual orientation monitoring standard was brought in about five years ago and it just hasn't been routinely implemented. And if it's five years, it's not an accident. It's just not your priority, but it's our community's priority because we need to be seen in this data. And this, you know, before I get too on my soapbox about queer health, but it, but it really does impact when, even if you see the response to monkeypox. You know, it, it, it really does show you sometimes the uh, inherent areas of focus that are within healthcare and those that aren't and when you sit in the space that isn't and you have doors sort of closing your face because of data and you know commissioning and all that kind of stuff um, it can be quite frustrating so you obviously were impacted by not having support available to you did you also find that throughout the treatment that the way that the healthcare practitioners treated you affected you and that's ultimately what made you look for more support resources yeah so I'm quite fortunate in the sense that I mean my consultant is my consultant and you know five minutes with him and that's it you know so so, so there's um, but even then there were times when you know his tone was a bit off and I didn't really feel like it was going very well and I had to kind of stop him and be like you need to change the way you speak to me um but I think like a lot of cancer patients, you lean quite heavily into your nurses and uh, especially therapeutic radiographers and people who you see quite frequently and that you can have these relationships with for support. And um, I think for me, one of the things that was at the same time frustrating, but also gave me compassion was the fact that when I had a question and there was no answer, it wasn't any malintent. It's just that they just genuinely didn't know. So at one point I was even asking about if it was safe for me to go on prep as, as a cancer patient and as someone who's on a TKI and there was no answer anytime I tried to talk about sexual wellness or impacts or what are the impacts of the sex I wanted to have whilst on a TKI because it's different to you know IV chemotherapy and what does that mean and all of these things and and there was just never an answer and and when there's not an answer they tell you just to go look online but where where are you going to look online and and that's really risky as well because who knows the fidelity of the information you're going to find so it was this sort of blank responses to, for want of a better word that drove me to really think like this has to get better like it, it can't continue this way my cns even laughs we, we have a very good relationship because i'm a chronic patient i see her all the time but um but she even laughs now about how her inability to answer questions led to this charity and i'm like you can have that one yeah that's okay <laughs> <laughs> it's one way to be famous without yeah. wanting to be famous isn't exactly it? <laughs> It's interesting that someone said to you to go look online because we tell all of our patients don't read stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's it, just it, it, that's baffling. It's, it's such an 
Yeah, it's such an odd thing. A really weird one I once had as well was when I went to Macmillan Centre and said, do you have anything LGBT? And I kind of knew they wouldn't, but I was just testing the borders. And I think they had one resource that wasn't, it wasn't appropriate for me at that time. And it was in their offices, in a file of facts, hidden away. And I was a bit like, well, how is that useful for anyone? That means you need someone to disclose their orientation or identity to you to access that resource. And think about what you're making someone do then just for the chance of finding something. Like it's, it's, it's again, without realising it, people sometimes create these barriers. And I see this a lot as well when we go into spaces and encourage them to be more inclusive in the way they set their space up. So whether that's, you know, visible displays of inclusion, etc. Um, and I think sometimes people think when we say visible displays of inclusion, they think we're saying stick a huge rainbow flag on the wall and do all this and play Kylie non-stop. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. I knew you were going to say that, Stuart. And I, I mean, I love Kylie and RIP Living Newton-John and I would love my GP to be doing that. But that's that's not really what we're saying. We're saying there are other ways to do it. And I've had, uh, when I've trained GPs and they come up to me and they say, I really love what you're saying, but in the community I serve, I just don't think that visual motif is going to go down very well. So think creatively. You can make a visible equalities policy that you put on the wall that then protects everybody. It's not this way where you have to silo these improvements for different communities. Usually, and I think we are moving towards this, is having conversations where we're all talking together as minorities or people affected differently by cancer. And we often come up with similar solutions about how to improve things. It's again, it's that one size fits all model. It's, it's still like that. And I think something, I think, I can't remember, I think it was a patient who told me actually last week that do not think that all these smaller charities that we do, Joe and I do lots of work with like Trekstock, Radiotherapy UK, Move Charity, Mummy Star, but you think if all the bigger charities just did everything perfectly, you wouldn't need smaller ones, would you? And we always direct patients towards these bigger ones all the time. But actually now more and more, I think I'm finding, so like live through this, actually the more appropriate things, that's that serves the community, but then I don't know if on a, on a bigger strategic level are we actually supporting everyone if we're directing to these bigger charities i 100 percent agree and i think even the bigger charities themselves are starting to be aware of this they're starting to understand that they need to either collaborate with us smaller ones that have this niche knowledge or they need to be signposting better and we're quite fortunate that because of our usp that we actually have got those good relationships with key cancer partners um, but I do see there's a lot of fantastic charities that I correspond with all over the UK and sometimes the thing is they will have that perfect pocket of knowledge but they need more resource to develop because they have very small teams. We have a tiny team, you know, and, and it's this thing of we are a national organisation and we do help people all across the country and beyond but there's only so much we can do with our tiny team and limited commissioning and funding. So, so it's that aspect I think sometimes part of it is the attention and part of it is the resource. You know, these organisations going to these small ones who have promise and who are doing really good things and finding ways to collaborate and uplift so that we can ultimately improve more patient experience. So can you tell us, Stuart, what Live Through This is? What could someone expect if they were to come and visit the charity website? Yeah, sure. I should also point out, because we've thrown the name around a lot, um, where it comes from. Because I think sometimes people are like, well, what an odd name for a charity? And sometimes I think the same. But it's because at the time, when this was supposed to just be a small coffee morning, uh, and then it sort of snowballed, I was listening to this whole album a lot, you know, Courtney Love, and just listening to that nonstop. And it was lived through this. And I was just like, oh, what a funny name for a group. And then um, and then here we are, <laughs> so much further down the line. So I'm um, sort of throw that out there for anyone who might know the album. You're lucky it's- 
it sounds really good. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember one person who sort of helped us in the beginning develop, they're like, no one's ever going to remember that. And I'm like, oh, it's three syllables. Come on. Um, so, so we're here for three main actions, I like to put it as, right? So we support and advocate for our community is, is, the, is the core value. But really what we do is for patients, we provide peer support that's online so we can reach people all over the country. Um, it's just a place for them to come and connect and it's mixed gender, mixed tumour. So they really just get to come and be them full selves and talk about identity and the issues and the things they're going through. Because we find as well that, you know, despite malignancies, normally it's the same things. It's fatigue and work and frustrations and friends and COVID and all of these things. So we do that and occasionally when they need it, we get involved with some direct advocacy. So. We've had to help patients change hospitals because of the homophobic treatment. We've had to help patients get second opinions on surgery because of transphobic treatment. So where we can, we exert some influence to help people have more options. Um, our second angle is for professionals. So this is where we provide high quality education, primarily through webinars. But, you know, if, if we can get on a train, we'll do it. We'll come to you as well. And these are really good sessions that go over the basics of the language, the terms, give people some confidence, go over pronouns, how to recover when you make a mistake, all of that stuff. But we also, as a charity, really push the idea of what are the actual differences? What data do we have about either differences in cancer patient experience, how to improve that? Maybe it's cancer risk modulation as a result of transition. You know, these much more sort of in-depth conversations that I think people really want to know, or equitable treatment through radiotherapy, you know, things like that. Um, and then the third arm is the production arm. So this is where we create bespoke campaigns and resources for the community where they just didn't exist before. So we, in our short time of being around, have created the first ever gender neutral chest checking guidance. So we did that Copperfield. We're just about to release Best for My Chest, which is an LGBT focused breast screening campaign. Um, we're also just about to release Screening MOT, which is a video campaign that encourages people to call up their doctor ahead of time for the appointment to ask for certain arrangements to make them feel more comfortable and going. Um, we've done a cookbook for the community to encourage them to connect online when they're stuck at home. Um, we are also as well just in a review stage of a document that will help trans patients understand how transition might affect their cancer risk and affect their ability to attend certain screening programs as well. And that's a piece of work I'm super excited to get out there because I think again it's one of those ones where people are told to go find it online and there's not really that much reliable information out there. Stuart, I don't think you're doing enough. I know. <laughs> Just sat here twiddling my thumbs. I'm going to take you back to when you started all this. How did you get your funding? I've always wanted mm. to know to start up a... Um... Oh, right in the beginning. Ah, that's a good one. So right in the beginning, it was um, me signed off work on the sick and sat about and... Macmillan gave us, I think it was a grand and a half or something, just to basically road test something. But the thing that was really valuable at that time was the support of the staff. So there was a really fantastic cancer patient experience manager at, at the trust, um, Lindsay Farthing, who I drop her name everywhere. She must be sick of it. But, um, but her support was fantastic. She really did get a team of people around me to really build something from the ground up. And, and I'll always be grateful for that, more than the money. Um, but from there, we slowly sort of build things up through trusts and funds, to be honest, which is quite common for LGBT health space. Um, it's quite hard for us to get local authority funding or uh, NHS funding. We're quite fortunate that we get NHS funding for our education because they're our audience. So, but we even then we're moving from Cancer Alliance to Cancer Alliance. You know, it, it's more on a project basis. 
Um, so that's where quite a large part of it actually comes from. And then occasional awards and additional trust funds and stuff like that. There's something we haven't asked you about yet. Um, you won an award recently, didn't you? Mm-hmm. I saw your face oh, suddenly yeah. everywhere across <laughs> every social media platform. Do you want to tell us a bit about yeah, that? whole thing. Yeah, um, so it's, it's funny because I won two awards around the same time and one was like really public and one less so. So like, so we got the um, One Young World Award, the Lead 2030, which is, you know, young people changing the face of health, etc. And, uh, and, and that was a really fun like industry one to win. Um, but then sh- that kind of led into a couple of other bits of press. So that included Gay Times and then Attitude. And that's where we got the Attitude Award. Um, and it, uh, it was actually a really fun feeling because we get quite a lot of recognition in the health space, but not so much sometimes in the LGBT space. So sometimes I think we have a larger impact on clinicians than patients, and I worry about that because we're here for the patients, really. And there obviously is a trickle down of patient experience improvement when you improve the system, but we want to be there for the patients. So being recognized by you know, a community magazine and getting that opportunity was really fantastic. And we were at the award ceremony with, you know, Gay Liberation Front and like people who've been in the industry for a really long time. And it, it was, it was super lovely. I think I gave the shortest speech of the night. Everyone else had these really long things. And I was just like, thanks. I felt invisible. Now I don't. Bye. You know, like that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, it, it, it was a really lovely thing. And, and again, it's, it's another step to help people know that we're out there. A bit more people remembered your thank you speech than others, though. Actually, um, I, I was walking out the bathroom later in the evening, and um, and because because it really was like a very short thing of like you know I started this charity because I felt alone and invisible. So thank you for seeing me, and thank you for seeing people like me. This is an award for them too. So then later in the evening, I was just walking out the bathroom, and some drunk woman just walked past me, and like with the proper like double fingers, like I see you. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah. Um, so I guess it had an impact. <laughs> Did you do like a mic drop as well? Is that why it was memorable? Like a Barack Obama? I should Obama. have done. I sh- yeah, I, I should have done. Instead, it, it, it I gave like a little, and I'm over six foot. So for me being like giving a little meek like nod and all this sort of stuff, I think it was quite funny for people to see. <laughs> but yeah, I'm grateful. So Stuart, Obviously, we do have lots of people um, who are healthcare professionals listening to the podcast. What can they do better? Obviously, one of our first tips from Rad Chat would be go and look at the website because I have to say the resources on there are amazing. And I'm not just saying that because you're on the podcast. I just wouldn't have mentioned it. Uh, but I have been on and they are really special. Um, and I, I would say that everyone will learn something from visiting it. But is there anything practically that people can do from tomorrow? So they've listened to the podcast and then they go and they start doing with every single patient, irrespective, that you think would have helped someone like you. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really important is to avoid making assumptions ever. So, so, you know, earlier we were talking about ethnicity and skin colour, right? So you don't make assumptions about where someone's from. Right. It, 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 and then you just ask someone, just ask someone about who they are, their identity, what's important to them, ask about things like that. And it's the same with sexual orientation and gender identity. So when, especially with sexual orientation. So one of the really interesting things when you look at um, some of the data, like, for example, the most recent cancer patient experience survey that just came out 
there were about seven questions where lesbian and gay people had significantly different, poor, I should say, uh, scores than uh, the national average. But when it gets to bisexual people, there was over 30. Uh, and I think it's something that gets missed sometimes. And, and this can happen because people make assumptions, right? So, you know, if that person came in and just started talking about, say, it's a woman and is talking talk about their boyfriend, and you just make the assumption they're straight from then on, then you've made an error there, really, because you've basically just stop them from being able to come out or so another thing that often happens is when patients come in and they're being quizzed about if there's any chance they could be pregnant and they're like no there's no chance there's no chance and they get pushed and pushed and pushed until they're forced into disclosure that's not a very nice experience either so it's this idea of learning how to meet a patient where they're at and learn how to frame your history taking in a reflexive way and an open way that allows people to describe who they are. And I think that also helps things long term. So if we are talking about things like partners and life, etc., especially when we're talking about treatment and impact, it gives them an opportunity to talk about what's important to them and what's important to preserve going forwards, especially if we think about sexual wellness and actually being able to describe what different impacts might be. So if we're talking about prostate health and we're talking about men who sleep with men and then the impacts of prostate health and you know if there, for example, is radiation in that area uh, or if there's even removal of the prostate so that people can describe to you who they are, their life, their partner, the important things about them. So, so I think that's one of the key things. Obviously, small things are really good, like pronouns in the bio, updating your policies, etc. But another thing that I'd really encourage people to do is don't wait to have that patient to start that conversation. Do it with each other. And just even if you have to just do a quick role play learning and what would we do in this situation? And sometimes it can just be a case of just talking about it. Because one of the things I've noticed personally as, as a patient is when someone struggles to say LGBT fluently, it shows me they're not saying it enough. So it's not coming up in their meetings. It's not really in the way they're thinking about how they're running their clinics and service, etc. So it's that it's that understanding that this inclusion doesn't hinder on when someone's in front of you. It, there's also a bit of background work to do as well. When you say fluid, what do you mean? So I meet people all the time when they say that LB. TB thing or you know or when people are quite dismissive and they'll do the LGBT and they get it right and then they'll be like QP whatever you know all these kind of things and it's these small bits where you're like yeah that doesn't feel nice and um, and I'm always trying to clue healthcare providers into the issue around microaggressions so microaggressions being those kind of small things that don't feel good and they don't feel like they were respectful um, but the problem is is with microaggressions they're quite hard to name and report and we all know PALS is not the best service for patients generally to get things resolved sometimes anyway so if a patient was to go into PALS to try and report a microaggression that's not really going to be taken very far but it definitely will be taken far with them emotionally and affect their rapport and their trust in services and I think the other thing that sometimes gets overlooked is negative experience with one clinician bleed into other aspects of healthcare. I know it personally where I've had homophobic um, nurses when I was having uh, invasive chest surgery after a, uh, an attack. Um, and that made me really wary of being an inpatient on wards because I was like, well, I don't want to be in that space again and have to bring a partner with me and have people even look at my tattoos and judge me in this way. Like, it doesn't feel good. Um, so, so, so I think there's something about that as well. And we see it uh, when we do our focus groups. A lot of it as well hinders on uh, GP experience because that's the clinician people are seeing generally quite a lot 
And we see all the time people saying, if I have a bad experience with my GP, I'm not going to go to screening. I'm not going to go into this appointment. I'm not going to go and do this. And usually a lot of these additional appointments aren't even in the primary care center, but it's that negative association that I have with health. So it's really just a friendly warning to people listening that you might be the best person out there, but that person might be coming with a history that makes them a little bit wary. So don't be surprised if you're doing the best and they're still a little bit hard to warm up to it. So sex and intimacy is quite a big topic anyway. Um, You might not have listened to a previous podcast that we did with Jemima, but Joe went very deep into her sex life and it made everyone panic because they were... (laughs) (laughs) That's where I've really got to know Joe. But sex and intimacy in this sort of protected characteristic area, Mm -hmm. I suppose for junior people listening, so when I was a junior band five, I still had some of my influences from growing up in India where, Mm. you know, my grandma taught me, if you're gay, don't come home. Um, That's why I was always scared of it. But now learning going through... I don't know, speaking to Amanda Boulderstone, speaking to patients who I've realised actually they're feeling uncomfortable because they're not being seen exactly as you described. Now my awareness is better. And I think I was one of the first few people to get the NHS rainbow badge, but I took it off because I realised actually I don't know enough to be wearing this. And then Mm -hmm. I think now I feel comfortable because I've done that education. But it's, yeah, it's quite scary in that way, isn't it? But, But it's good for you to have that reflexive understanding to actually say, actually... I'm not in the best position to wear this right now. I'm not in the best position to identify myself as someone who someone can come to because I don't feel equipped. And and I think that first rollout of rainbow badges, uh, that did happen. You just signed a pledge and you got the badge. And I think a lot of people were excited to get a fancy badge. It was a nice badge. But, But then they sort of earmarks themselves as someone who could handle these things. And I remember a lot of clinicians around that time were saying to me, okay, I've got the badge, but what happens if I get asked about this and I don't know this? It's like, well, Acknowledge that you don't know that. And if you can, work with the person. Don't say, I don't know, or we can't talk about it. Say, let's look it up together. Let's do this together. Let me take five minutes out. All that kind of stuff, learning together can be really useful. Um, But you're right. The idea of sex and intimacy and wellness is incredibly important. And it's always a a double-edged sword with me in in the fact that I love talking about it, probably in the same amount of detail as Joe. Um, But also at the same time, I'm always so crystal clear that our work is in all sex because people assume that to be the case for us, but there are so many impacts of sex. And I've written a couple of articles about this at this point, um, one for Trek Stock, one for Fight Bladder Cancer Magazine. We're gonna be doing some more content on it soon because I think there are a lot of assumptions made around sex even before you start bringing in sexual orientation and different sexual practices and these kind of things. Um, and I think a lot of the information out there is very heterosexual. I mean, I definitely felt that when I went looking at that information. Um, and sometimes that can mean that the information is technically inaccurate. So, for example, if you think about people who have erectile dysfunction, you need a firm erection for anal sex. So sometimes the interventions that are sort of suggested uh, aren't going to be enough. So urethral suppositories and stuff probably won't do it. Um, so, uh, but if you actually go looking online, you can find forums of these men who have had an implant and they're having a great time and they tell you in a lot of detail. So, so, so there's this idea of this, again, personalized care, this idea of maybe it's not uh, putting people through the same process all the time and understanding their different uh, priorities when it comes to sexual awareness and what that looks like for them. And I think as well, when we think about sex and outcome in cancer, a lot of it is about penis and vagina progenitive sex. And, and that's just not the gold standard of sex. That doesn't have to be the marker of sexual wellness. And I think there's a lot to be said about other sex practices 
external stimulation, wellness, etc. And there are so many new products that are around. Um, one of the ones that I tell people about quite often are these, I think they're called My Laurels. I've forgotten the name now, but they are basically dental dam panties. So if you are having urinary incontinence as a result of treatment and you're nervous about oral sex, you can continue, you know, you can carry on. So there are so many exciting new products and high quality products as well that are out there that can really support someone's sex life. I love all of that information largely because I like talking about sex anyway, but um, it is like I was overwhelmed today because I was reading an amazing MSc dissertation and just the fact that it was on sex, intimacy and communication. It wasn't just about sexual relationships oh, yeah. and it didn't focus on heterosexual sex at all and I was just like yes there are changes afoot and it makes me so happy to read information like that and especially because the more we have conversations exactly like you've said the better people out there realize what's needed and better products are being produced and that we're yeah. talking about how to use them and you know Naaman and I have met lots of people within um, within cancer care who have a bag of tricks, but it's it's having those visible to patients to open up conversations, which really does help. And mm. I totally yeah. get it that you know you shouldn't ever automatically relate gender, sex, or to all like in the mix because it, I do sometimes think it kind of blurs things. But I do love the fact that just the conversations are opening up and obviously as an educator working with healthcare students for some of the students who are 18 to have to talk to a cancer patient about sexual orientation and maintaining an erection, it is challenging for them. But I think by having more conversations, yeah. more training, role playing, it definitely helps and supports that confidence. And sometimes it isn't always about just having the knowledge. You can have the knowledge, but do you have the confidence to then have those discussions? Absolutely. So, so in addition to teaching healthcare, I also go into universities and teach people in training. And I always give them case studies because I think putting young people on the spot is the fun bit because it, because it makes them think creatively and, and it gives them a chance in a safe space to try something out as well because I say to them, like, you might meet this patient. You may not know all the technical bits of the treatment I've just described, but they're still going to come to you and say, this is the impact I'm dealing with. Can you help? So we do ones where it is things about, you know, removal of prostate and anal sex and things like that. And what would you say to this patient? And they all freeze up and it's just like, this patient may say to you these things. So, so even if it's a case of, I don't know, let's find your psychosexual therapist or something along those lines. But I mean, I've even had a patient who comes to us for support and he, um, he came to us because he was treated for anal cancer and that was a really big thing for him in regards to sexual wellness because he has a husband and a boyfriend and he was very open about the fact that he wanted to know when he could return to having sex. Um, but he was getting no information from his clinicians. We can only give so much information. The language he was using was very... I wouldn't be able to repeat it on the podcast because Naaman's told me not to say anything untoward. Um, but, 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 but that gives you an impression of how people want to talk about things uh, to you. And as much as possible, we were giving him the information he needed. But he ended up, I think, finally finding the answers he needed when he managed to speak to another patient in America. So that's the lengths people are having to go to to have truly nourishing conversations about these things. So. 
this is why it's important to not shy away from these conversations because these patients are absolutely crying out for them to be normalized really as well and i think the more we normalize the idea of talking about sex and sexual wellness and sensation in regards to treatment and outcomes the more we can also take it away from this idea of like men should feel this way and women should feel this way like the way that women's sexual wellness and uh, it's just not really discussed and described in, in relation to cancer and outcomes it's pretty baffling to me and when I wrote an article about this not too long ago I made a really big effort to not say men's health women's health all these kind of things because ultimately we're talking about the same things blood flow sensation arousal all these things so why not talk about it in a way that's accessible to everybody and just talk about different anatomy at certain points but uh, you know, if you think about urinary surgeries and and the amount of nerve cutting that happens in that, and we think a lot about erection and prostate health, but we don't really think a lot about the erogenous zones for women in that. And uh, and I think that's something that gets overlooked a hell of a lot. So how have you found kind of supporting maybe people from different religions where LGBTQ plus isn't necessarily a norm, if you want, or is not accepted as much? Yeah, that's definitely a, a, another layer to things. Um, so obviously this leads into the idea of intersectionality, right? So people are multiple things all the time, and sometimes those things overlap and create unique forms of oppression or barriers, and that's definitely the case sometimes for LGBT people of colour. And as an organisation, we try and make sure that we are aware and supportive, and obviously we have a diverse workforce ourselves, even in our small team. Um, and. Uh, I actually gave a webinar on uh, some of these issues as well so we decided to build an extra few slides into this webinar to really explore that topic so I went and spoke to I think it was like six or eight different LGBT organizations led by people of color specifically for people of color and we really got into what are the things you want people to know you know so so beyond the people attending our peer support and sharing their stories with us but even then sometimes you know those sessions just by who attends can sometimes be overly white so it, it doesn't it sometimes isn't something people are always going to volunteer sometimes they do um but when it came to me sort of giving full education and giving stuff that was actually accurate to the areas that we were focusing on as well uh, it, it was important for me to go and speak to other organizations led by and for and I think some of the stuff that came out of that was definitely, uh, I, I think generally people make this assumption that stick someone who looks like someone in front of them and things will get better. And that's just not always the case. And that's definitely not the case for queer people of color. Um, one of the things I heard a lot, especially from Muslim communities, is if you stick someone who, you know, air quotes looks like them in front of them, uh, that can sometimes be more worrying because they're worried about if they come out to that healthcare provider, will it get back to their community? And they're fully aware of NHS data and privacy and all of these kind of things, but there's still that fear and concern. So, so I think there's a lot to be said of you have to work with every community to develop your information, your approach and your understanding. You know, the conversations we had about faith and honour and is it and making sure that people felt that they could be their full selves in healthcare. You know, the concerns I've dealt with with people of color when they they are worried the nurse is going to reveal their boyfriend came to see them when their family comes to see them later. You know, it's those sort of fears and concerns that it's so important to be aware of and then almost rehearse them with the team build your resources and that's one of the things that actually came up from speaking to a black organization where they were saying there's no point encouraging people to disclose in healthcare if you haven't got a plan of action in case it goes wrong 
so from that we went away and we made a five page long signposting resource that we now share with people that really does go into all these different things that covers things like faith organizations that support LGBT people all the way through to homelessness because we really need to make sure that we're doing our duty to make sure that we're not putting people in positions where something negative might happen to them and we haven't been prepared. Stuart, it has been amazing, an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. I've already learned more than I thought I could learn in the space of half an hour and um, I'm definitely going to be in touch with you to see if you'll come and do some work with me, (laughs) Um, which would be amazing. But um, thank you so much. So thank you for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been Joe McNamara and Naaman Jolka Anderson. A huge thank you again to our guest, Stuart O'Callaghan. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. So our next guest to feature will be Ashwin Padia, who will be discussing his experience of working in the NHS as a South Asian person from the LGBT 